Thank you, Suncoast Singers. And praise the Lord for the message of that song and its beauty. Good morning, church. It's so wonderful to be with you on this beautiful Michigan spring day. And I want to encourage you to continue looking to Jesus. We are still moving forward with our plans for the school. Nothing has changed except where it will end up. So we're asking you to be joining us in prayer. We are still collecting resources for it. You can see the chest out in the foyer as you leave. And may your prayers attend to this wonderful, wonderful work. Let us pray. Lord, we've gathered in your house and we've been blessed. We're asking now, Lord, that we would be a blessing to you. And we're praying and praising you for the forgiveness of sin and the grace that abounds. And now, Lord, we're asking that on this Sabbath preceding a commemoration of womanhood in the form of mothering, that you would bless the mothers in our midst, the women that seek so much, Lord, to shape the culture of our homes, our society, our schools. And now, Lord, I pray, bless them in the workplace and wherever else they may go. And may we all today remember the holy and high office of this sacred cause. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm beginning a series of messages entitled Educational Reformation. This morning's message is entitled Let the Righteous Women Rise Up. On this day that precedes Mother's Day for much of this country, I want to encourage and challenge and point us to the center and source of most education. For indeed, we will have a hard time going around the influence of our mothers. Take your Bibles this morning and open them up to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. I want to remind you that we are on the cusp of entering the promised land. Jesus will soon come, and in readiness for His coming, He's seeking to raise up an army of youth that are rightly trained. That training will begin in the arms of a mother, and it will continue all throughout life with the affirmation and sometimes the challenge to be true to what these children were taught as children from their mother. I want to encourage you that as we begin the book of Exodus, we find that God begins the journey out of Egypt by the hand of at least four women and one little girl. Let's look at it. Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. There's a problem. Israel is beginning to outnumber Egypt. And the king has a solution, he thinks. Verse 15, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other was named Pua. And he said, when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth and you see them upon the birthstool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives, and he said to them, Why have you done this thing? And let the boys live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous, and they give birth before the midwives can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Why? Because the midwives feared God, and He established households for them, 
Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born to you, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. This morning, friends, I want to assure you on the cusp of going home that God is looking to deliver his people from spiritual Egypt. And he's going to do it the same way he did it before, which is why a series on educational reformation is beginning as it is today, with an appeal, with a challenge to mothers. When we think about the story of God raising up a man named Moses, before he appears on the scene as a great one, he is in the arms of some that world might not esteem as so great. But I want to assure you also that the odds of your children getting out of this spiritual Egypt and walking across that spiritual Jordan into the promised land are about as high as the babies swimming out of the Nile River tossed there by the citizenry of Egypt. I want to sober everybody before we start, because if we don't know where the starting point is, we don't, won't know how radical our decisions should be for change. The very idea that this nation was going to be liberated was a terrible threat to the mind of Pharaoh. And the very idea that God's going to actually have a remnant and liberate the world with a loud cry is a terrible threat to the king of the skies, the ruler of darkness. And God chose godly women to change the landscape, the spiritual landscape of the world some 3,500 years ago. Right now, Satan is encircling the minds of our children, not with the ordinary things that kids thought about for 5,900 years of earth's history, but with as many diabolically designed ways to enter the mind, sometimes through devices that we put in their hands, to where we are no longer the regent of this region. And I want to ask everyone here this morning to come humbly to this moment and say, is there anything that needs to change? Because we are not taking our children with us if we don't challenge the society our children are growing up in and choose a different culture for our homes, our schools, and our churches. When I think about education, I think about something that was mentioned by Ellen White some hundred years and 25 years ago. She said, the Word of God is the most perfect educational book in our world. Yet in our colleges and our schools, books produced by human intellect have been presented for the study of our students, and the book of books, which God has given to men to be an infallible guide, has been made a secondary matter. Human productions have been used as the most essential, and the Word of God has been studied simply to give flavor to other studies. Now, one of our educators in our very own community said to me at the beginning of this journey we're on in regards to remaking and reforming education, he said, too much of what we're doing is just like everybody else with a flavor of Adventism. I'm here to tell you today, there is no home that is simply sprinkled with a little bit of Christianity that's going to stand up against the intentionality of godless secular humanism. And if we don't come at this with a whole lot more prayerful intentionality and whatever reform we, we understand under the Spirit's guidance is deemed necessary, our children will be left and they won't hear the first trumpet sound. It's a sobering starting point. The very essence, the very substance, 
The very structure of all that we are is to be shaped by this relationship with the Creator God who's come into a covenant relationship with us. And our children need to know they're of royal lineage and they have a priestly role in saving a lost world. The world has an intent. Those little bitty babies you held in your arms, he wants to destroy their innocence. When they were seven years old, they were all sweet little children. He wants to destroy that sweetness, and he wants to take away that humility. And what does he want to do? He wants to replace it with love of self and love of the world. And the result is a powerfully locked-down heart that's short-sighted on its destiny issues. I want to remind you in the book Patriarchs and Prophets that the author states that the Hebrews, though they were surrounded by the Egyptians, kept themselves as a distinct race, having nothing in common with the Egyptians in customs or religion. Now, I'm afraid we're not doing so well on this front. I'm afraid that we watch a lot of the same things everybody else watches. We play a lot of the same worthless games that other people are frittering away their time with and undoing an appetite for the Word of God. I'm afraid we're shopping as much and spending our money in just about as many wrong ways as everybody else, seeking to medicate the emptiness of our lives. This morning, I want to remind you that you are to be wonderfully, beautifully different because you're a child of the King. And being a child of the King is not only a privilege, but it's a responsibility. And I'm fearful that there are too many parents this morning, my emphasis is especially to the privilege and responsibility of mothers, that are finding their own goals more important than understanding the purpose and the primary goals of their spiritual parenting. When we look at the life of Shipra and Pua, we understand that Pharaoh thought he could get them to cooperate. I'd like to know how far off base this guy was to where he could take people that deal with babies all the time and actually make him baby killers. I mean, he had a screw loose upstairs because you can't deal in the substance of babies as a midwife only to help both mother and child live and to be asked to do the opposite. And yet he chooses to ask or command them to do it and they choose not to. When they wouldn't do their job, he turns to the whole nation, and he calls upon them to hunt out and slaughter the helpless victims. Pharaoh charged his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save. Satan understood, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 241, that a deliverer was to be raised up among the Israelites. And by leading the king to destroy their children, he hoped to defeat the divine purpose Hit the pause button, preacher. Hit the pause button. I'm here to tell you, some of the children sitting in these pews right now are being called to be raised up to be deliverers of an eternal interest of an entire world as the last chapter of grace is about to be proclaimed. I'm here to tell you that they're going to be preachers and teachers of righteousness, whether they're engineers or educators. And God is moving on the hearts of parents today to say we've got just enough time left to make sure we get the army together. And I want everybody to take a pretty serious look and say, where is this army of youth rightly trained? I know so many of us have done our very best. I'm on that backside of parenting. 
I'm at that moment in time where I can look and see things I wish I would have done different. But this morning, friends, mine is not a backward glance over my shoulder. Mine is a renewed call of commitment primarily to mothers and grandmothers and aunts and sisters in the Lord that there is yet a mighty work to be done. There is a deliverance for this world and God is still banking on the community of the covenant to get it done. The women who feared God, Shipra and Pua, dared not execute the cruel mandate. Now I want you to stop and think about something. Shipra and Pua, the Bible infers, have no children. Shipra and Pua come out of this thing blessed by the Lord. And part of what they said to Pharaoh was true. Because certainly there were mothers in Israel who didn't understand that these godly women weren't going to participate with Pharaoh, but the word was on the street. And certainly there were plenty of mothers who did try to pull this birthing process off themselves. But Shipra and Pua still delivered an awful lot of little Hebrew babies, and a lot of them were little boys. And Shipra and Pua were blessed because they were women of confidence and courage, and they knew who to fear the most. And their greatest honor was to the God of heaven. But I want to ask you a question. These childless women, who certainly were only two amongst many of the myriad midwives who worked among this large community, which was soon to be delivered by a little boy placed in a boat. These women were not simply willing to risk their lives for a principle. They were risking their lives for the families of people they knew. What I'm talking to you about in this moment is the sense of community that nerved their heart to do what was right. They knew there was a woman by the name of Jochebed that was going to have a baby. And while they didn't know it was going to be a baby boy, they knew about Jochebed. And they knew about the myriad other mamas out there, and they had been by to see them and given them all kinds of advice. And they weren't willing to surrender their lives simply for a principle. They were willing to surrender their lives for the love of the faith community. And I'm asking you here this morning, mothers and fathers, to reconsider what being intricately involved in the faith community means to the faith community itself in the present and the future, and your own little community in your home, your own little kids who need to run into some modern-day shipras and puas who won't bow down in the presence of an oppressive world. It's not enough just to show up at Sabbath school. It's not enough just to linger for church. We have to go back to making this faith community everything in our lives. We have to go back to the hard work of getting to know people where they go from strangers to brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're going to have to abandon some of those weeknight commitments that get in the way of our prayer meetings and our weeks of spiritual convocation. We're going to have to show up at the Vespers and some of these other events if we want to have our kids blessed by the modern-day Shipras and Puas. There are women out there who don't have any children who are to be helping shape this faith community by loving the ones God's given to the rest of you. This element of our life is what Paul refers to in the book of Hebrews when he says, don't forsake the assembling together as some are in the manner of doing, but all the more so as you see the day approaching. As we come near to the promised land, we're going to be taking risk for other people's kids and we're going to be encouraging them on when they run smack dab in. 
to the bulwarks of hell. When I think about the brave women that got this whole Exodus thing going, Shipra and Pua are right on the front side. And they're a lot like this lady Abigail who farther down the road will stand up to King David or almost King David when he's coming to Nabal's house to destroy all of the men. Similar situation, only this time it's, a, it's an insecure king with a fiendish goal. And this woman Abigail, wise and discreet, submitted properly to the structures of authority, finds him on his way coming over the hill, bows down before him, calls him Lord over and over and over again, not like the God Lord Jehovah, but like the soon-to-be King Lord David. And she rebukes him up one side and down the other, and he writes a psalm, Psalm 141, let the righteous smite me and it'll be a balm to me, let them strike me and it'll be gladness to my soul. There's nothing quite like a courageous woman who respectfully rebukes a cowardly or evil man. I want you ladies to think about it. If the men don't have the courage to do what's right, we certainly need the women to stand in their lot, just like Peter writes, to be like Sarah without any fear. Look it up. This is the calling of true Christian womanhood. They have bowed low before the King of Kings. They know who to obey, and they understand how to properly engage with the structures of authority in their life, sometimes including for certainly their husband. They're not ill-tempered and unsurrendered and unsubmitted to the God-ordained structures of society in the home, but they do know when the men around them are crossing the lines, and they carry on in the name of Jesus true to the real Lord of their lives. Now let's move to the second woman, Jochebed, chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. She's the only unnamed person in the narrative. Well, I shouldn't say that. The, the, the daughter of Pharaoh, we think she might be Hatshepsut. We don't know for sure, but for some reason, Jochebed is not named. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer... She got him a wicker basket, covered it over with tar and pitch, and then she put the child into it, and she set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Now I want to ask you a question. When the command of the king is to throw everybody in the river, how do you come up with a plan like this? I mean, really, stop and think about it. This is either the most foolish and fiendish act of a deluded and deranged and stressed out mother, or it's the most daring and divine tactic born in a time of prayer. It's one or the other. It's not both. She's either sending him quickly to his death or to his deliverance. Those maids of the daughter of Pharaoh can with one flip of the wrist solve this problem and that baby's gone. But this mother is a praying mother and this mother's heart is enlarged with every smile that beams up at her face and she understands because God has communicated a deliverer is on the way and he just might be the one. Book Patriarchs and Prophets describes it this way. The mother's earnest prayers had committed her child to the care of God, and angels unseen hovered above his lowly resting place, and angels directed Pharaoh's daughter thither. Now listen, mamas. Did you hear what was just said? This praying mother was directed by an angel to take up this plan. And there was an angel out there in the reeds guiding the boat. 
And there was an angel up on the bank guiding the maids of Pharaoh's helpers. And I want you to understand this is what your motherly prayers do. They unlock the forces of good to establish a stronghold in the midst of darkness. They direct the actions of men in ways that set up future deliverance. And this mother's prayer set in operation divine agencies making sure the boat and its recipient arrived at the right place. None of this could Jochebed know for sure was going to happen. But taking the next step, she prepared that little reed boat with slime and pitch. And she had a little girl who followed it along the banks. How busy are you, mother? How busy are you? What are you busy with? There's nobody typically that's more busy than a mother. You know the old saying, you know, the man works from... How's the poem go, ladies? Help me out. All right. Thank you very much. Well, let me do that at the end. Uh, a, a, a man works from sun to sun, but a mother's work is never done. Thank you for delivering the preacher. The truth of the matter is, is that this mother found time to pray, taking care of a father for her little boy and his big brother Aaron and his big sister Miriam. But she found time to make sure she didn't lose her hand in the hand of God. What's going on in your life that's more important than unleashing the angels for the deliverance of your kids? And your kids may be the age of me. And they may be somewhere in between. But if there's one thing I want to encourage you with today, mothers, no matter where you are in the journey of mothering, those same angels are waiting for direction from the God of heaven to say, answer that lady's prayer. And by the way, gentlemen, we better do this. Go to the book of Peter. Let's look it up. Because there's too much converging, even as I speak. Things I didn't have written down on the paper. Let's go to the book of Peter. Let's make sure we get this all figured out. Because without getting it figured out, first book of Peter, chapter 3, we could find ourselves in a difficult position. Chapter 3, verse 1. This is written specifically to women. In the same way, wives, so this is all about submission. We are all to be in submission inside the different structures. Be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now, if you read what Peter and Paul have to say about this, they very clearly define where submission to God overrules any submission to another man. Verse 2, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Chapter 3, verse 3, your adornment must not be the external braiding of the hair or the wearing of gold jewelry or the putting on of dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. 
There's nothing wrong with being beautiful and attractive, but the real beauty goes so much beyond what the outer beauty can ever be that God wants to make sure the people closest to us love us most for who we are, not for how we look. And there's nothing wrong with being beautiful in the eyes of your family, but it is the outer less importance. Don't let it become the major most importance. Verse 5, for in this way former times the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Verse 6, last two verses, very important here. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you've become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And I'm afraid that that last part can come only from God and is so needed now. Doing what's right without being afraid. And maybe she should have said a bit more on the borders of Egypt when he was saying to her, tell him you're my sister. But I want to go to verse 7 because there's something about a woman's prayer that's very important to God. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in understanding as someone weaker since she is a woman. And that's not talking about spiritually. It's talking about physically. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. There's something about the prayers of a godly mother unleashing the agency of the angels to do a work that can be written down in the annals of sacred history. There's something about those prayers. And any mother that's too busy to pray, especially pursuing things, all of which would be of lesser importance, is misguided and misgiving in her influence that is both conscious and unconscious. God heard the prayers of Miriam, her faith was rewarded, and her baby was delivered. Now, I want to enter the next person in the narrative. Go back to Exodus chapter 2, and we have a, probably about a seven-year-old girl. All of these women setting in operations the course of deliverance for the entire nation of Israel. And I don't want to pass by this seven-year-old little maid. We know that God has used little maids before, and will use them again. In this case, we have big sister. Verse 4, his sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to them. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid. And she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him, and she said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Thus appears big sister, verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you? And the Hebrew woman, of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Now, I want you to think about this plucky little future leader of Israel who will be the first woman to be called a prophetess in the Bible. She had been coached. She had been prayed over. But she was still probably only about seven years old. And I'd like for you to imagine for a moment what it means for a seven-year-old ambassador before the princess of the mightiest nation on earth. There's something going on here that is being facilitated by a future female leader of the church who is learning a spirit dependency now. 
And how about these six and seven-year-olds we have, like the one that brought me the little dollar 21-cent offering to get the momentum going on our future school? God is looking to nerve the youngest and the oldest and all of them in between with a spirit-dependent sense in accomplishing His task. Patriarchs and prophets says Miriam had been secretly noting every movement. She's paying attention, perceiving that the child was tenderly regarded can you imagine what her prayers would have been like? Seven years old, she had taken care of this little boy. And we can't say for sure she was seven, but this is what some Hebrew scholars are guessing. She ventured nearer, and at last she summoned the courage to say, shall I go call a nurse for thee of the Hebrew women? And the sister hastened to her mother with the happy news, and without delay returned returned with her to the presence of Pharaoh's daughter. Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee wages. Now let's go to the last woman in the narrative. She's perhaps the most unusual or unexpected one. Verse 6. She's got this little reed boat floating on the wavelets of the Nile, and she opens it up and sees a little Hebrew boy crying. The Bible says she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Now, I want to read you what Patriarchs and Prophets says about this encounter. She says, angels directed Pharaoh's daughter hither. Her curiosity was excited by the little basket. And as she looked upon the beautiful child within, catch these next seven words. She read the story at a glance. This lady knew what was going on. She knew of the command to destroy such little individuals as this one. But the tears of the babe, the author of Patriarchs and Prophets writes on, awakened her compassion and her sympathies went out to the unknown mother who had resorted to this means to preserve the life of a precious little one. And she determined that he should be saved. She would adopt him as her very own. You talk about gutsy. You talk about great. You talk about compassionate and kind. Moses was not only going to be nurtured by his own mother for the first 12 years, but he was going to be in the shadow of another great woman from whom he had to be careful to guard his affections so that he could do his job. But she was a woman of great affection, and she decided to go against her dad to do what she knew was right. And thus we have born the beginning of a deliverer. I want to ask you this morning on this Sabbath day before Mother's Day, how much intentionality is there in your mothering this morning? Do you have a family altar? Are you teaching your kids the basics of order and loving service? Are you going to the extra work to teach them to work so that they could be to this world true servants of God and friends to man? In those 12 years that Miriam had, she entered with a divine intentionality to faithfully improve her opportunity to educate her child for God. She felt that he had been preserved for some great work, and she knew that he must soon be given up to his royal mother. All this rendered her more diligent to care for his instruction than that even of the other children. 
So this is what she did. Think about this on the edges of Canaan today. She endeavored to imbue his mind with the fear of God and the love of truth and justice. She earnestly prayed that he might be preserved from every corrupting influence. She showed him the folly of sin and idolatry and early taught him to bow down and pray to the living God who alone could hear him and help him in every emergency. And what we know the scriptures say to be true was true. Train up a child in the way he should go. And it can't be forgotten. Now Moses needed to hang on to it sooner than most. But I want to tell you something. What makes Moses so unique and his mother's role so relevant to today is that by the time our kids are at the age of accountability, they're facing the same kind of corrupting influences that Moses faced in the court of Pharaoh. Think about it. In the court of Pharaoh, he saw the most vile and the most violent. He saw the most lascivious and licentious. He saw all kinds of things in the name of religion and power that could have easily beckoned him into the expressions of the carnal heart. But he had learned to love God. He could not forget his mother. And he stood for God and finally turned his back on everything the most powerful nation could offer. And because of it today, we are, we are seated in a sanctuary whose nation was a sanctuary and is a sanctuary for the world. How far-reaching in its results was the influence of that one Hebrew woman? And she was an exile and a slave. The whole future life of Moses, the great mission that he fulfilled as a leader of Israel, testifies to the importance of the work of a Christian mother. No, Ellen White will go on to state, you're not painting upon a canvas or chiseling on the marble. Instead, you're impressing a human soul. So I want to ask you, friends, do you really think society can bear up under a nerveless and pleasure-seeking woman, a dishonest and distracted lady? Think about it. All throughout the entire narrative of Scripture, there is really only two types of women that are mentioned. One are those that had to resort to evil or chose to resort, and we're warned against them. And the other are the great women of courage. And while we have the Vashtis and the Esthers and the Queens of Sheba and the Lydias, and while we have the narrative of a woman who's very confident in Proverbs chapter 31, the highest order of shaping society is entrusted to the most wonderful, delicate, nurturing hearts that have ever walked the face of the globe, and we call them mom sculpturing lives and architecting character, it so far outweighs anything else that you're going to do. Don't be distracted. Don't be detoured by finding your worth in something for which the world will give you a, a paltry paycheck. Let one determine that should God entrust me with this journey, I should be a part of the modern-day remnant raising up a group, starting with the little one you've given to me, of delivering agencies that will get us across that spiritual Jordan and point out that it's almost time to go home. Our kids must be raised so that they can face the full-court press of a wicked world. And it's time for a generation to say, my children will be the ones that people this army 
rightly trained. My children will see working for the church as a great honor. Do you understand that we're struggling at this hour of earth's history to find people to teach in our classrooms and stand in our pulpits? Something's really wrong. And it's time for us to abandon the parenting model and the youth ministry model that got us here. It's time for us to say, this community of faith is the most important thing in my life outside of nurturing the one that's under my roof. And where I can combine them together, I will. We are to be praying for our children. We are to be praying for their teachers. We are to be praying for every auxiliary influence in their lives. But if we don't have much time to pray, how many angels are being released to set in motion a mighty current of purity and life-giving health and fragrance to this stinking, stench-filled world we're living in? We need to pray for ourselves. And we need to be looking for the angels. In the story, there are angels guiding the baskets, angels guiding the maids, angel directing Pharaoh's daughter, angels speaking to the elders, angels come and speak to Moses to tell him farther into his life he's the deliverer. Some of our children have found their way into the pig pen. Don't be discouraged. Some of them are so strong-willed they have to get in the pig pen before they can get out and praise their mother. God didn't abandon them. I'm telling you, friends, we need to pray down. Mothers, start praying down. The angels on the loose to shepherd. And we need more shepherdesses recognizing the power of their prayers. And this morning, I'm calling on the name, in the name of Jesus Christ, whether you've had a baby and hold your own or whether you've never had one like Shipra and Pua, I'm calling every woman listening to me here today to go back to a ministry of prayer, of love and courage that can change the tide of the church and there can be an educational reformation that sets a different trajectory of success and vitality for God and His work in reaching a lost world. I want to leave you with this poem. Blessings on the hand of women. Angel guarded strength and grace. In the palace, cottage, or hovel. Oh, no matter where the place. Wood that never storms assailed it. Rainbows ever gently curled. For the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Infancy's Infancy's the tender fountain. Power may with beauty flow. Mothers first to guide the streamlets from them souls unresting grow. Grow on for the good or evil. Sunshine streamed or evil hurled. For the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Woman, how divine your mission here upon our natal sod. Keep, O oh, keep the young heart open always to the breath of God. All true trophies of the ages are from the mother love impearled. For the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Blessings on the hand of women. Fathers, sons, and daughters cry. And the sacred song is mingled with the worship in the sky. Mingles where no tempest darkens. Rainbows evermore are hurled. For the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Ladies, your work has just begun. It doesn't matter to me if your children are in their 20s or their 50s, their teens or their toddlers. 
This morning, God is calling upon you to be the courageous, the kind, the nurturing, and the nerved who can say, this is love, this is truth, this is justice. And with tender nurturing hand and loving heart, can call your children, whether they be mature or whether they be maturing, back to the Jesus who plans to use them to enlighten the world with the glory of a message of grace. It's time for an education reformation, and I'm not so foolish to think it can happen unless the hand that rocks the cradle is in the game. So if something needs to change at your house, ladies, start the conversation. If something needs to change in your life, offer it up to God. If you're afraid it's going to cost you a lot, join the group that started the Exodus. For the Exodus will soon be upon us, not in symbol, but in reality. And we all ought to be true to the beauty of the hand and heart of those women who've stayed true to God. God is calling us all back to the sweet simplicity of a home not defined by the modern media or the social media, but defined by the ancient media, which sets in place the joy of the highest order. So today, from Shipra to Pua to Miriam to Heshetzep to Jochebed, remember, folks, it all started with the heart and hand of a woman. And by God's grace, may the righteous women rise up. And may our homes be churches, not theaters, not game arcades, nothing else. And may the heart of the woman be touched by the heart of God. And may the world be a better, different place because of it. Amen.